Hey everyone, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 33. Today we are continuing our series in Teaching Thursdays, and we are discussing a rather uh, highly debated topic, and that is the topic of the rapture. Now, in our age, especially when I think about myself growing up, there was a hugely popular book series called Left Behind, later made into several different movies, and the idea started with this concept of a rapture, a secret snatching away of God's church from the earth. Last time we talked on Teaching Thursdays, uh, the topic was about understanding the end. The debate on how should we understand the end or the last days from a biblical perspective and how does both dispensational theology and covenant theology differ in their understanding of that phrase. So now that we've introduced the concept of the end, we're just going to simply break down every part of dispensational theology that makes up the end. And our first uh, topic of the end, or maybe sub-doctrine, if we want to put it that way, is the rapture. So today we're going to cover what is the rapture, how is it agreed or disagreed on in different church denominations and theological traditions, what are the two main positions of the rapture in the respect of Jesus' return? And we're also going to look at the classic rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And we're going to analyze it and figure out whether or not dispensationalism's view of the rapture is a consistent biblical view. So this, again, is a friendly critique of dispensational theology from the perspective of covenant theology. And if you're new here and you've just joined in on this conversation, I want to say thank you. And I hope that you find this uh, helpful and edifying. Um, but I would recommend that you go back and listen to our very first uh, Teaching Thursday coverage on this idea of dispensationalism and covenant theology. You can find all of the previous episode recordings at betterbiblereading.com. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. So because we've introduced the end last week, or a brief understanding or introduction to the end, um, these next few weeks, we're going to walk right one topic after another with dispensational theology. And the topics that we'll be covering will include this morning, the rapture, uh, the tribulation, the millennium, the final judgment, all those topics that are a very key, uh, really make up the core of the dispensational view when it comes to the end times, the so-called end times. And we talked last week about how the end, just very, in a brief, just general way, the end, according to the Bible, um, the last days, is just simply... The period between the two advents of Christ. The time between his first coming and his second coming. And what we saw is that the Bible, through the verses we looked at, includes the church in that whole scope of redemptive history. And that's really important because in dispensational theology, 
the end times or the last days are seen primarily as having to do directly with ethnic Israel. So what we're looking at this morning is the way that they come to that conclusion. The way that they come to that conclusion is that the church, mostly Gentiles, remember they had the two separate people groups, ethnic Israel, the church. They say the church will be raptured out and then the end times, the last days is going to be God dealing with ethnic Israel. So it's an important, um, I think, understanding to come to uh, what we looked at last week. Because if it is true, as we saw in Scripture, that the church is included in that whole scope of time, then we have to do something with this so-called rapture concept. We have to understand how do they come to this conclusion and is it biblical or not. Um, I did this a few weeks ago. I read a portion from the Dallas Theological Seminary Statement of Faith. This is not what you have to believe to be a student. This is what you have to believe if you're on faculty there. And they are one of the most uh, predominant uh, dispensational institutions. In fact, they were uh, formed for almost the sole purpose of advocating dispensational theology. This particular uh, passage from their Statement of Faith is Article 18 has to do with the rapture or what they call the blessed hope. And I'm going to read that to you before we take a look at Titus uh, chapter 2. So let me read this so you can get an idea of how this is kind of crystallized as a doctrine. It has to do with the rapture. Here's what it says. We believe that according to the word of God, the next great event in the fulfillment of prophecy will be the coming of the Lord in the air to receive to himself into heaven both his own who are alive and remain unto his coming and also all who have fallen asleep in Jesus and that this event is the blessed hope set before us in the scripture and for this we should constantly be looking at several verses including Titus chapter 2 so in dispensational theology the rapture the blessed hope is, according to them, the next great event that we're looking for. We're waiting for this rapture to happen. Think back of the, you remember back in the 90s when the Left Behind books and the movies um, came out. And after that, there was this like unbelievable uh, fascination in uh, media, Christian media, about this idea of the rapture. Remember September 11th when that happened? Most of the churches were packed full and people started talking about this idea are we is this is this tribulation what are we in what is this are we do we supposed to get ready to be raptured what's happening and there was a lot of confusion that happened during that time um i was in elementary school at the time that tells you anything and uh i remember the uh the hustle and bustle that was happening in our in our home church everybody was confused wanted answers well this is in dispensational theology What we're looking for. We're not looking for uh, Christ to return to institute final judgment and the eternal state, whether heaven or hell. According to them, that doesn't happen until way after the fact. What we're waiting on now is a rapture. So that's according to dispensational theology. Here's what it says in Titus chapter 2. 
This is the key verse that they get that concept, blessed hope. This is where that comes from. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. Here's what the word of the Lord says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the way, this is a good verse to go to to show the divinity of Jesus. That's at the end of verse 13. That's just a side note there. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So that passage, what we can say at this point in covenant theology and dispensational theology, we're in agreement in terms of the what. We agree that Jesus is going to return. That's, you can see that all in our statements of faith, uh, historic creeds. We believe Jesus is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And that is a, I would say, streamlined doctrine that everybody agrees Christ is going to come back. However, where we disagree is not in terms of what, but in terms of how. And the how has exactly, uh, in dispensational theology, the how... In this passage, they say, is this blessed hope or rapture. So again, they don't see this verse. Verse 13, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. They don't see that as meaning Jesus returning to bring all things right, to finally judge, to finally resurrect everyone and have the new heavens and new earth. They don't see that as referring to this. They see this as strictly being a rapture, a catching up of the church. That's important because, as we read in that statement of faith, this is that next event in their timeline. Remember, I've been mentioning last prior as well. If you type in dispensational theology on Google or something like that, you click on images you're going to have just picture after picture after picture of timeline. You're going to have this timeline moving in a linear direction. You're going to have all these little bubbles and brackets and everything like that. The next thing they're looking for is the rapture. Now, this is an interesting element to me because um, the probably one of the most uh, classical books when it comes to dispensational theology is a book called things to come and this book was written by a dallas theological seminary professor j dwight pentecost and he has i mean it, i have the book at my house i've been looking through it to make sure that i'm understanding what they're saying correctly and um it's this massive 500 plus page book of just the whole dispensational theological system Every, all, all these topics are covered in, in great detail in there. And it's interesting to me that even in this book, this author, J. Dwight Pentecost, he has suspicions with this passage and says that it seems that this passage actually refers to the second coming of Christ 
and not the rapture. And that's interesting to me because even in Dallas Theological Seminary's statement of faith, the whole idea of the rapture is called in theological terms the blessed hope. And that's where this passage comes from. And yet you have a prominent, who's not a professor anymore, but a prominent professor at Dallas Theological Seminary saying this passage seems to not be talking about the rapture. It seems to be talking about the second coming of Christ. So there's, there's some confusion happening even in-house. And I want to say that every dispensationalist would agree with him. But I'm just saying you have an authority on the issue, so to speak, on that side that has his own suspicions about this. So are we talking about the rapture? Is that what this passage is inferring? Is, is, is it too much inference to read into it and say that there's a rapture being talked about? Well, we don't have time to analyze the whole book by any means, but I want to show you that you do see Paul revealing to us a little bit of where his mind is at. So in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that whole topic is a call to an upright Christian life. And the reason why is because, verse 13, we're waiting for our blessed hope. What is our blessed hope? Our blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Look back at the very beginning of the book, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul has to say. And we should connect these two passages together. Here's what he says. I'll read those first two verses for you. Paul, as servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I'll go ahead and read verse 3. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So a few things to point out here. When we look at these two passages together, Paul mentions a blessed hope. Chapter 2 of Titus. Well, he mentions hope in his introductory statement to the letter. And the hope that he's talking about in chapter 1, verse 2, is eternal life. That's the hope we're looking to, eternal life. Now, surely, as Christians, we're saved, we already have eternal life. So how do we look forward, how do we hope towards eternal life, towards it? By God bringing it to its completion. How does God do that? He does that by glorification. How does he do that? By resurrection, new bodies. So what we're thinking of when Paul mentions hope is that final element to happen. That final element being Christ to return to judge the living and the dead and to raise all who are dead and to give those who are in Christ our new incorruptible bodies. That's the hope that Paul's thinking of. It's connected to eternal life. And again, in verse 1, Paul is starting this out by saying that he's a servant of God, an apostle of Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That goes all the way back to what covenant theology 
is saying that the whole scope of scripture relates to that initial promise given i've said this almost every week now that initial promise in genesis 3:15 that the one who will come of the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent those who are in that promise will have victory over the serpent and that that concept that covenant of redemption that covenant of life that god gives through that it plays itself out all the way through the rest of scripture and those who are in that promise the bible calls god's elect those included in that promise and that's what paul is promoting here so in a very broad sense we can look at those first two verses and they inform us of paul's later notions namely chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 of what he means by hope and what he means by christ appearing and coming we're not thinking of this separate um, precursor event namely rapture but we're thinking of christ coming to bring chapter 1 verse 2 our eternal life to completion okay so in my mind that passage in I agree, actually, with the dispensational author here. That this passage is talking about Christ's second coming. Not We're not talking about a rapture here. Now, that's a problem on their end. And it's also the reason why they don't just look at Titus chapter 2. Now, you'll have a lot of people who will really fight to the death uh, to argue that this passage is talking about the rapture. But again, in that statement of faith I read... They not only include Titus 2 as a um, reference, but we also have another passage that is a very prominent one in the conversation. But before we get to that, I'd like, yes, go ahead. Just one little thing yeah. that's helpful. Yeah. Uh, verse 13 is uh, constructed based on the Granville Sharp. I can't quote it like I used to quote it, but basically what it means is. The blessed hope and the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ are the same. We're right. talking about the same thing. It's not the blessed hope, i.e. the rapture and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Both are in view, and I wish I had that rule so it would make more sense to you. But uh Anyhow, yeah, yeah, that's helpful and not fuzzy enough at verse 13. Sure, yeah, thank you for that. Um, I want to lead into this. Uh, now, surely we, we haven't completely demolished the rapture theory. I don't want to say that okay, 10 minutes in, there's no rapture, that's it, we've solved that problem <laughs> because they've been wrestling through this much more than 10 minutes, okay, on, on both sides of the issue. But before we get to um, one of the most uh, classical passages if you will about the argument of the rapture i'd like to direct your attention to the very last verse of hebrews chapter 9 because this is um something else that i think really informs us in the argument the very last this is verse 28 of hebrews 9 very last verse in the chapter if somebody wants to read that, that would be, that'd be great. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, 
not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay. So, you recall, maybe, maybe you recall, in the language of their um, statement of faith here, this article 18 about the rapture, um, they have this ending phrase that says that this event is the blessed hope, and for this we should constantly be looking. Now, in that constantly be looking, you saw that type of idea in uh, Titus chapter 2, and then again here, when it mentions Jesus' return, there's those who are eagerly waiting for him, watching for him, expecting him. And in dispensational theology, honestly, there's I, I started out this whole series by saying we have to understand that dispensational theology is not necessarily a concrete system that has these deep foundations. It's shifted and molded over time. Um, so you have a classical dispensational theology. You have a hyper-dispensational theology. These are not necessarily technical terms, but just to differentiate the fact that there, there are key differences throughout the generations of dispensational theology. But it's important for us to understand that dispensational theology seems to be split in the way that they define the rapture and the return of Christ. So... Um, as I mentioned, that author, J. Dwight Pentecost, in the rapture concept throughout Scripture, there's a mixture of scriptural language. There's a few Greek words that they look to um, to talk about the rapture or to prove the rapture. And they say it's tricky, and he says it's tricky, because sometimes the same words are used, and it seems like they're referring to the second coming. Sometimes it seems like they're referring to the rapture. That's kind of what led him to his conclusion of, well, I guess Titus 2 is talking about the second coming. But even more than that, even more than a um, mixture of view on the language used, there's also a mixture of whether or not Christ returns in two phases— or if he returns twice, or if we should define it a third way. So, as Brother Sam pointed out in Titus chapter 2, some would see that blessed hope, one event, the appearing of our Lord as a second event. And both of those coming under the banner of Christ's second coming. Well, then in other views, you have a problem where Christ returns secretly in the rapture and then he returns again in the second coming so really you have two second comings or really you have a second and third coming of jesus in that understanding and it gets really difficult because again there is disagreement in dispensational theology as to whether or not jesus returns once in two phases or if he returns twice either way you look at it it causes some problems because when you get to any passage referring to Jesus appearing or Jesus return, then you have to decide, okay, what kind of return are we talking about? Um, is this the return or is it a return? What are we talking about here? So again, there's some problems with that uh, understanding. But in Hebrews, the very last verse, Christ is going to come a second time. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. What is he going to do when he appears? 
Not to deal with sin. So he's not going to come back on the cross or anything like that. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now this is a segue into a couple weeks from now when we talk about the millennial reign. And I'll just say this just for the sake of the conversation today. The millennial reign of Christ in dispensational theology, two things we should understand about it. First of all, it's a literal 1,000-year reign. Second, it's Jesus visibly, bodily returning to earth and physically reigning in Jerusalem for 1,000 literal years. In that view, we'll look at this also in a couple weeks from now, the temple in Jerusalem is built again. There's a physical temple. And even in some dispensational, especially classical dispensational theology, animal sacrifices begin again. Now, they won't say that these are actually atonements that are like saving them from their sins. But what it is, is these are memorial offerings that are supposed to be represented by Jesus being right there. Again, this is a really complicated system, and it's a complicated problem because as we've been talking about redemptive history, Jesus coming is the great revelation. There is not a greater one to follow. And in this view, when you have the temple sacrifices and everything reinstated, You've actually time traveling backwards. You're going backwards in redemptive history. You're going back to the shadows which Christ the substance comes to fulfill. And really if you go back to them, he hasn't actually fulfilled them, has he? Because you're going right back to them. So again, this is a problem. But in Hebrews 9, there is no relation of Christ returning in anything to do with sin. He's coming to fully and completely save those Now, again, we talked about this eternal life. We're already saved, but we're waiting for our eternal life. We're already saved, but yet Jesus is going to come to save those. The only way that we can understand that, I think, biblically, if he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, is that he's not coming to reinstate the temple sacrifices. He's not coming to accomplish anything on earth that he hasn't already accomplished. He's coming to bring our salvation to completion, i.e., glorification new heavens and new earth now in that i think this verse here sees christ's return as one comprehensive event not a two-phase event or not a rapture before the event his return is his return period that's why it calls it the second time the second coming of christ it is absolutely distinct and absolutely comprehensive, the second coming of Christ. And under that is everything that we wait for. Now, in this argument of the rapture, probably the most um, sought-after verse to quote and to point people to in dispensational theology is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you can turn there, and we will basically be spending the rest of our time there because there's so much <clears throat> to analyze and to talk about when it comes to this passage. Is there any questions at this point? I don't want to make you wait till the end or anything. Okay. 
going to be looking at verse 13. I mentioned this um, earlier, but in the dispensational scheme, the delay of those ethnic promises to ethnic Israel, how is that going to happen? How is God going to fulfill those? Well, the only way that it can happen is if the church is raptured kind of out of the way, if you want to put it that way. The church is moved to the backdrop, so to speak, and the focus goes back to ethnic Israel. And that rapture concept, the word, comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 being caught up. So it's important that I have heard it said by people who first come to an understanding of I don't know that the rapture is a biblical concept and a lot of times people will say that and their first argument will be well the word rapture is not in the Bible and I think that we need to be careful because there are certainly other words that we hold near and dear in doctrine that aren't necessarily words that are in the Bible but they can be inferred by reading the scriptures And the same thing can be said here. We do need to realize that even though the word rapture doesn't literally appear in this passage, that the word caught up in Latin is where we get that word rapture from. So just all that to say, if we're going to make an argument against the rapture, we don't need to just say something like that that says, well, the word's not in the Bible, so it's not there. We need to have a better argument than that. Namely, we need to look at the text itself which we're doing this morning. Um, But I say that because one of the things that I hope that this does is it helps us in our conversations with people who are dispensationalists. And that's easy. Count your friends on your fingers, and probably 90% of them are, because that's what almost every church is in this region. So when we're talking to them, we want to make sure that, number one, we have loving conversation with them, Right? We want them to see the truth. We want to have an edifying conversation. And secondly, we don't want to throw darts, especially poor arguments, because we can make much better arguments by looking and seeing what the passage actually says and whether or not the rapture is biblical or not. So if somebody will please read <clears throat> verses 13 through 18 in First Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, <clears throat> a couple things to mention we're going to look at several verses in depth. Um, a couple things to mention. First of all, this passage is chiefly about Paul answering a concern for those who have fallen asleep or those who have died being Christians. You see that in the very first verse. <clears throat> so anything that Paul's going to say, first and foremost, he's focused on that topic. Secondly, you can see that in some way, this is a completely applicable concept that Paul is teaching because in the very last verse of that chapter, he tells them whatever he just said to them should be encouraging to them. Not only that, but they should encourage one another by what he has said. So on the one hand, Paul is most concerned with that immediate context of believers he's writing to and the particular believers that they were evidently worried about who had already died. 
before Christ returned. So that's the, that's the um, main focus that Paul has here. He's not just teaching them this abstract end times chart system. Okay? He's answering a key concern that has them worried. And he wants to encourage them. So he's being pastoral here. Okay? Not to say that he's not being theological, but his main concern is pastoral. So one thing that I want to mention that I want to mention here is that he, he uses that phrase, and you do see this in other passages in the Bible. Verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. First Corinthians, when Paul gives the warning about the Lord's Supper, some are sick, some are asleep. And then again, in this passage, he says, those who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now this fallen asleep is not speaking of this uh, this is a side note here by the way not speaking of this uh, concept called soul sleep. This is a a pretty popular thing in actually a lot of uh, televangelists. They teach that when Christians die they they enter into what's called soul sleep. Their body and spirit remain right there with the body and they're there waiting until Christ resurrects them so what you have is basically you you know you've had those moments where you're at your house and you're um, trying to get stuff done you sit down for a minute and the next thing you know three hours have gone by but it feels like it was just a blink of an eye because you're like man I didn't even realize I fell asleep and it's just three hours later all of a sudden that's kind of how they view this in, in soul sleep is that it's almost like you die And then immediately you wake back up, but it's like hundreds of years, thousands of years have passed, however long it is from the time you die to the time Christ returns. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Probably the best place, you don't have to turn here, but the best place that we can be informed by, what does he mean by sleep? Because clearly he's talking about those who have died. Well, Jesus uses the same phrase when he's teaching a theological lesson to his disciples about Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep. I go to wake him. Now, Lazarus had died. But the whole idea of the word sleep used in Christianity is to communicate that our death is not final. We don't have to read like way far into it more than that. It's just simply to say when we die, we don't remain dead forever. Our hope is in the resurrection of our body. Therefore, Jesus uses that phrase to speak about sleep. And Paul uses it here for those who have died because they don't remain dead forever. Now, this is an important part here because now we're talking about specifically the rapture, verse 17. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Now, my Greek is pretty poor, and I haven't been um, formally brought through everything in Greek, um, but word studies are our friends, and the internet is our friend too. And um, this Greek word, to be caught up, means, first of all, not a secret or quiet occasion. And that's important because you have the rapture theory being taught in dispensational theology generally. And then you have some advocates that teach it the way that the Left Behind books and movies taught it is that it's a secret rapture. 
it's like Christ invisibly returns and it's like that and all the Christians are just poof they're gone just they've disappeared they're gone they're nowhere to be found well this passage is not talking about a secret or quiet event first and foremost it has a military connotation to it in some ways but also it's a display of force or ownership you could literally translate it snatching away or seizing it's a it's a sense of seizing bounty seizing what belongs to somebody and that's the the what we use to describe our salvation as being redemption redemption is a purchase unto ownership and jesus is coming here in this passage to rightfully take what is his to seize it and it's a display of his ownership a display of his authority display of his sovereignty to take what rightfully belongs to him and that is nothing but or nothing close to a quiet event how else do we know it's not a quiet event well let's uh, read what it says uh, leading up to that passage verse 16 the lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the sound of the trumpet now those i don't think there's any way that you can read that and think quiet just nice you know quietness there's noise there's display and um even in that cry of command it carries the kind of connotation um, no this isn't mine originally carries the kind of connotation that you would have in the military when everybody is ordered to attention it's this voice this command of authority okay so at the very least we're not talking about a secret quiet invisible event clearly in the passage there's everything to do with open display visibility appearance sound secondly notice what paul says here so being caught up first of all is to communicate ownership and belonging to second those who are caught up together with him in the clouds will meet the lord in the air and so we will always be with the lord now in that sentence structure whatever happens of being caught up and meeting those so we will always be whatever it is that's happening carries a continuation whatever state is those people are in whatever state we're in when that whatever it is that's happening occurs that is what's going to remain so we will always be with the lord now that matters because in the rapture concept this being caught up is a temporary event so it's not the state that everybody remains in forever it's a temporary event waiting for the final event but paul in that phrase so we will always be communicates that whatever we're waiting for we're waiting for so it will always remain 
it will it will carry a repetitive nature. It won't be a temporary element of our experience as Christians. Now, a few things to say. Um, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay. Again, dispensational theology, covenant theology. We're agreeing with the what. We're waiting for Jesus to return. But what are we going to do after we meet him in the air? That's the how, and that's the disagreement. Are we meeting him in the air to go up to heaven and wait? Or another popular translation in those who would reject that view, we meet him in the air the same way that we would greet somebody entering into a city and walk back with him. What do we do a lot of times when somebody comes over to our house? Well, if you're a good host... Hopefully, you don't just say, come on in, the door's open. Hopefully, you meet them at the door, and then you walk back into your house with them wherever you just came from. If you were in the living room, you go to the front door, you meet them, and then you take them back to your living room or offer them, I don't know, whatever it is you do when you are hospitable to people. So, that concept of being brought into the clouds to meet the Lord, and by the way, those who were dead in Christ returning with them. That's his argument. This we declare to you by word of the Lord, this is verse 15, we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. How will we not precede them? How will we make sure that they don't miss out on something? Well, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise first, those who have fallen asleep. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the them are being resurrected. We wouldn't have to be resurrected because we're already alive. But apparently what's happening here, and we will, I'm not just going to tell you to take my word for it. We'll look at a cross-reference verse here to prove the point. But what's happening here is a resurrection of the dead and those who are alive also receiving their glorified bodies all together. One singular event meeting the Lord in the air. What do we do after that happens? Well, I think because the structure of the paragraph does carry a lot of military language. So that cry of command is that call to attention, right? The being caught up is to seize the the spoil of war, if you will, the spoil of victory in battle. And then meeting the Lord in the air is the same phrase used in Greek language to meet a king who's returning from battle. And you see that in the Bible, right? Citizens of a place, you think about David comes back from his battles. Jerusalem has a um, big parade happening, right? And then they sing the song that, you know, Saul... Saul killed a few people. David killed a whole bunch of people. That's paraphrase. But um, they invite him back into the city. They meet him as he enters the city. They go back into the city with him. Again, that's the type of language we see here. So two views that we can have here. We will either be united with Christ and caught up. And the way we would be united with him is that we kind of keep going up. We meet him halfway and we keep going up the rest of the way. Back to heaven for our rapture time. And then he goes to the earth and deals with ethnic Israel. Or we meet him in the air 
and we go back to the new heavens and new earth as he executes final judgment, new heavens and new earth. Those are really the two views that we can have. Now, it's important to realize that 1 Thessalonians does not end at the end of chapter 4. There's a fifth chapter. We've been so focused on this paragraph, maybe you've forgotten there's a fifth chapter. But there is a fifth chapter. And in the fifth chapter, the problem with dispensational theology is that dispensational theology sees two completely different concepts being taught. Okay, They would say, chapter 4, we're talking about the rapture. Chapter 5, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. Here's what Paul says in chapter 5. Chapter 5, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not darkness, brothers. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Oneness, in other words. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Read these next two, next three verses, and then I'll stop here. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. A couple of things I want to mention to you here. The last verse there, chapter 5, verse 11, is almost word for word the same as the last verse of chapter 4. Paul has in mind the same kind of encouragement that he wants to give them with what he says in chapter 4. And I think it is unnecessary that we see chapter 5, the day of the Lord, as a separate event from what we're talking about in chapter 4. A few reasons. First of all, the encouragement given in chapter 4 is that when Jesus returns, whether we're alive or whether we've already died... We're not going to miss out on anything that's going to happen. Secondly, chapter 5. Whatever it is that's happening is going to be good for those who are in Christ, but it's not going to be good for those who aren't in Christ. How do we know that? Because you're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. How is that going to happen? Because people will have a false sense of peace and security, and then suddenly... Destruction will come upon them. So two things are happening. One thing when Christ returns is a glorious hope-giving moment for Christians 
and a terrifying reality for those who are not. Okay? So Paul's thought here in chapters 4 and 5, I do not think is a shift in thought, but a shift in the time frame of the one thought. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, Paul encourages them with the what? Chapter 4. Chapter 5, Paul tells them, don't concern yourself with the how or the when. That's exactly what Christ says to the disciples in the first chapter of Acts before he ascends into heaven. They say, are you going to, are you going to restore all this stuff? Are you going to fix everything here? Is that what we're, is that what's going to happen? And he says, it's not for you to know. Don't worry about that. Go, go do your mission. Go do the great commission. Go fulfill the great commission. Bring the gospel to the nations. That's what Paul says here to the believers concerning the times and seasons. You have no need to have anything written to you. You know he's going to come like a thief. <clears throat> but you're not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. Jesus will come like a thief in that he will seize what belongs to him. And it will be like a thief because it will be surprising and unexpected to those who aren't waiting for him. But he says you have no need for that day to surprise you like a thief because you're walking uprightly. You don't belong to the night. You don't belong to the idea of a drunkard. You are children of the day. You're children of light. And since that is the case, let's be on the defense against the works of Satan. And let's encourage each other by the fact that Christ will return. So whether we're, verse 10, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. We have union with Christ, whether we're alive or dead. So whatever's going to happen when he returns, we have hope and comfort in it because we're not going to miss out on anything. He's going to return with those who are already asleep. He's going to return in the presence of those who are alive at the time. Everybody will be united with Christ. But for those who are not in Christ, there will be sudden destruction, just like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. There will be no need for Paul to say that if Christ's return in verse 4 didn't also carry with it the execution of judgment. In dispensational theology... It's clear that judgment is happening to those who are not Christians. And since chapter 4, according to them, is a rapture, we have to say that chapter 4 and 5 are talking about two different things. But Paul didn't write chapters and verses. Paul wrote the letter to the Thessalonians. And in chapter 4, he's clearly talking about the what. Chapter 5, he's talking about the how and when. Of the same reality, because he says at the very end, encourage one another with these words, encourage one another with these words. He's giving them an encouragement for that concern they had in chapter 4, verse 13. Don't be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve. We have hope. Don't grieve about it. So in this case, it's important for us to see Paul's consistent thought happening throughout, because... We don't want to improperly divide segments of thought as to automatically mean something else just because we see a chapter 5 heading. Suddenly he's talking about something else. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, 
I don't have time to take you to the parallel of 1 Corinthians 15. I'll give you some homework. Go home and read 1 Corinthians 15. And especially because 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the final resurrection. What you can do is look at 1 Corinthians 15. I'll even give you the specific verses here. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. Later on, you don't have to look at it now. We won't have time to go into it. But look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And then parallel that with 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And I think it will be clear that these two passages are in parallel. They're the same thought But it helps us because Paul talks about Christ returning for resurrection and final judgment in 1 Corinthians 15. And if these are in parallel, then 1 Thessalonians 4 is not talking about a separate event called the rapture, but it's talking about Christ returning once and for all. I think that'll be helpful. We don't have time to look at all that. I don't want to keep everybody late. But um, just to say in closing... At that end of that passage in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives that comforting words, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've been talking about this concept of we're already saved, but we're also waiting to be saved. How are we waiting to be saved? We're waiting for our saving to be brought to completion. That's what he says, and that's what he means by saying God has destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live for him. Whatever it is that we're waiting on Christ to return, we're waiting for our salvation to be finally obtained. And the way that that happens is, again, by being completely glorified, we're being sanctified now in the here and now. We're growing more and more into the likeness of Christ. But we're waiting for that day when we no longer have the curse of sin on us. There is no more sin. Christ comes to completely make things right. And how does he do that? He does it by glorifying us with incorruptible bodies and destroying death. And Paul uses that same phrase in Philippians 1.6. I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Whatever that day is, he's going to bring that salvation to completion. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. We're waiting for that day when he returns and we finally obtain our salvation. Any closing questions before I get us going? Yeah, the book I was referring to, he quotes him more than anybody else. Anyways, um, I'll close this out and uh, we will continue this next week. Well, thanks for listening to episode number 33 of this podcast, and I appreciate your participation in conversations that sometimes aren't easy to have and sometimes are not quite easy to follow along. But my encouragement to you and reminder each and every week that we do these Teaching Thursday studies is this, that how we understand the whole structure of the Bible is going to have a huge impact not only on how we live, but it's also going to have an impact on how we understand individual passages. I hope that today was maybe a prime example to see 
that if we just analyze certain biblical texts and come to a conclusion of the meaning of the right interpretation, it will either prove or disprove a doctrine or a certain theological tradition, in this case, dispensationalism, and their view of the rapture. What we don't want to do is just simply affirm a position such as dispensationalism or covenant theology and then try to shoehorn every single passage of the Bible into that system. It should always start with the Bible and the Bible informing our positions. We never want to have our positions presuppose from the very beginning to force a certain interpretation of the Bible. Well, I would also encourage you to go over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode number 33, and you can just do forward slash episode 33, and there you'll be able to find the notes with this episode. You'll be able to kind of reference the verses that we mentioned and do some of your own study. And I hope that that will fuel some good, helpful conversations uh, that you can have with others. If you found this to be helpful, I would really appreciate you heading over to iTunes where you can leave a review of this podcast. That's one way you can help me get the word out. But also feel free to share this on social media. Any effort on your end uh, to help get the word out would be greatly appreciated. Well, God bless you. I hope you have a great rest of your day.